Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, I have news for you. Oh. I'm not actually Molly. I'm her evil twin, Holly. Oh, God, no. And I've been sent here to steal the baby that was secretly put inside you by a robot. There's a baby in my womb. Where's the doula? You don't even remember because you have amnesia. Oh, shoot. That explains everything. That explains why I don't know where I am right now. And you're in love with your cousin. He was always handsome. <laughs> that cousin of mine. Um, that's a perfectly plausible way to start this show if we were doing a soap opera. Yes. Because soap operas, I think we think of them as these over the top, uh, shows with lots of melodramatic plot points. There's always an evil twin. I've always been um, an evil twin. <laughs> well, like, minus the evil twin, you're saying if we were doing a, <laughs> a soap opera. Stuff mom never told you pretty much is a soap opera. You know, twists and turns, gender, heteronormativity. <laughs> Progress, anti-progress. I think we move too fast to be a soap opera because if you've ever watched a soap opera, it takes two weeks for like the waffles to come out of the toaster. Yeah, there was one incident. The, the, the time article did not state which soap it was on, but it, was, it said that it took 17 days for one woman to get out of a revolving door. She just kept having flashback after flashback. I hate it when that happens. It's really awkward. There's a, a revolving door to get into our office building here uh-huh. in, in, in Atlanta, as, as you know. Man, imagine being stuck in that for 17 days. <laughs> and they keep having flashbacks. Flash- I don't know if I have that much stuff to flashback to. But yeah, they move super slow. So slow. So I, I think we move a little bit faster than a soap opera. We, we may have the plots and the ups and downs. And uh, the twists and turns of a soap opera, but we do not move that slow. And that is one of the characteristics of soap operas, which is our topic for the day. Yeah, because we're going to cover like 70 years of soaps. That would take 250 years in soap time. (sighs) And the reason we decided to talk about soaps now is uh, recently some of the most uh, long-running soap operas were canceled. All My Children and One Life to Live. These things have been on on the air for over 40 years. And now they're going to be gone. They're gone. And they're now, the network uh, soaps are whittled down to only four of them. The only ones to make the cut are The Bold and the Beautiful, Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, and The Young and the Restless. And not surprisingly, the type of programming that is taking over these daytime slots where the soaps used to be, reality TV. Reality TV and game shows. A makeover show. Yeah, they're cheaper to produce because yeah. uh soaps, even though they may seem like they're taking forever, they employ a ton of writers, a ton of actors. Uh They do new shows 50 weeks out of the year. Most mm-hmm. shows are just 20 weeks out of the year. There's no rehearsal time. They just have to keep shooting and shooting and shooting. Yeah. But it's an hour every day. I mean, the resources to do that are insane. So they're saying that reality is cheaper. Game shows are cheaper. And, uh you know, people just aren't watching them anymore. Yeah. Who do you think makes more, Susan Lucci or Snooki? Oh gosh. That actually would be kind of hard to tell. Maybe Snooky does. Snooky just got that, that big speaking engagement where she's going to make more than Toni Morrison. Oh yeah. That's kind of depressing. Let's move, let's, let's move to something <laughs> not so depressing. Like the history of soap operas, which started in the 1930s 
on the radio. These were radio serials that were produced specifically for housewives, and they were great because kind of like how I like to listen to NPR mm-hmm. while I um while I cook <laughs> while I cook dinner. I feel like I'm doing one of those uh those fundraisers, you know, for NPR, <laughs> like Ira Glass does. Um, but I, it's perfect because you can go about your work. Mm-hmm. And you can just listen along. You don't have to sit there. You don't have to be a captive audience in front of a TV. And But you were captive enough that you were in the home and listening to that. And that's why soap operas got their name is because the sponsors and sometimes the creators of these shows were the manufacturers of household cleaning products. So let's say you're sitting there, you know, making dinner for your husband and your pearls before he comes home in the 1930s, Kristen. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, one of the characters on your shows works in a reference to, you know, a really great mopping liquid. Or something. I love mopping liquids. I don't know if that's what they're called because I don't clean. Sorry, mom. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of slid in there as part of the story. You don't even mm-hmm. notice that it's an ad. Mm-hmm. But the next time you're in the story, you're like, oh man, that character on my favorite show, she uses this mopping product. I'm going to buy it. Yeah. It's like, it's like product placement, all the stuff in Jerry Seinfeld's, uh, cabinets, you know, they were always <laughs> munching on. Yeah. So, uh, that's how they get their name. The soap comes from the people who are putting these shows on the air. And opera, according to the Museum of Broadcast Communications, from the very beginning was kind of set out to be mm, sort of an ironic kind of uh, put down on yeah. the on the form because opera, in terms of people singing, that's one of the highest art forms you can be. Right. And they're saying that this person's life and its melodrama, they're comparing it to that highest art form and kind of making it into a joke. So right away from the beginning, the term soap opera it's kind of a put down and I don't mm-hmm. think that it ever regains any sort of cultural cachet. And so I think that they're kind of, you know, they're always considered a punchline, a joke, something that only women watch. Right. And that's why we kind of wanted to go through the history and show times at which soap operas were actually pretty great. Perhaps they led to all the things on television we enjoy today, such as Snooky or our, our primetime soap drama like shows. Yeah, they're incredibly formative for the type of TV that all of us, guys, gals, teens, adults, watch today. And it goes back to 1930 to a Chicago radio station, WGN, and a lady named Erna Phillips. And she started this serial called Painted Dreams about, um, it was a 15-minute serialized drama set in the home of an Irish-American widow and her young unmarried daughter. So the widow was giving her daughter all sorts of advice. There'd mother like, Moynihan. There were little conversations that were instructed between mother and daughter. And, uh, and the, the show really had its background in the kind of fiction, little short stories that were in women's magazines in the 1920s and 1930s that were so popular. So they're saying these soap operas are sort of a, uh, you know, kind of a, maybe a, a pit stop on the way from those old melodrama books. Mm-hmm. All the way maybe to the romance novels that and, came later. And then they borrowed the serialized format from shows like Amos and Andy, which mm-hmm. was a very popular comic radio serial. So these things were super popular. Everyone was listening to these. Most of the daytime programming in radio were these kind of serials. And then we've got old TV coming along. And everyone at first thought this was not going to work. These were not... uh formats that were interchangeable because, you know, if these housewives were cooking dinner or cleaning, all of a sudden they'd have to sit down to Mm -hmm. actually watch the show. So people thought it was not going to work on TV at all. But little did they know just how much soaps would take off on TV, as we all very well know. And Guiding Light was the first soap opera 
to make the transition from radio TV, and actually from 1952 to 1956, it was broadcast on both radio and television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a few years where they overlapped, but by the early 1960s, most of the soap operas are on television, and uh, they expanded. What was at first a 15-minute show became a 30-minute show because uh, there were more actors, you, you had more time to like set your scene, um, and this is where we get a lot of the the same conventions that we have today, like the music to provide the theme, mm-hmm. um, the cliffhangers on Friday, so you'll come back on Monday. There are some soaps, I was reading another article, where nothing happens Monday through Thursday, and everything happens on Friday. Yeah, the cliffhanger. So you just watch on Friday cause to get like up to date. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they start um, coming on TV, and they start getting longer. Some of them move to an hour just because... You know, they're making the families bigger. They're building more characters into it. And and they're having a lot of success with the format. And we also see the beginning of network rivalries. We have CBS and Procter & Gamble team up for As the World Turns, which was incredibly popular. And then NBC and ABC did something quite groundbreaking. They started the, the medical soaps with the doctor's and General Hospital. Yeah, I think if you're a fan of shows like ER, Grey's Anatomy, you have 1963 with these medical soaps to thank for that because uh, setting a show in a hospital allows you to bring in characters and have them leave if they're not popular. But if they are popular, they can stick around mm-hmm. and be like the doctor's friend. So it was a really good setting these um, soap writers figured out to to bring a lot of people in and to have a lot of really emotionally charged Moments, because that's what happens in a hospital. Right. And speaking of emotionally charged moments, uh, one place that soaps are really under uh, underappreciated mm-hmm. in TV history is for the social issues, mm-hmm. social and cultural issues that they bring to the foreground. Granted, it is sometimes done in a highly dramatized and seemingly unrealistic way. Yeah, but not many people, not that many people have amnesia. <laughs> right. Um, and, and you do have, you know, a little more, some more far flung things such as murder as a result of temporary insanity. Uh, but at the same time, they, we have the, the first televised, like dramatized abortion mm-hmm. in 1964. I think it was Erica Kane's. Character. I think Erica Kane got one later, but we did have one even before Roe v. Wade was passed. Oh, yeah. This is 1964. This happens um, on Another World. And then in One Life to Live, we have the first soap to foreground class and ethnic differences in 1968 by introducing the first African-American character who, as part of the soap plotline, tries to pass as white. And then later on, probably like a million episodes down the line, because we know how slowly soaps move, comes out as a black person. We have some of the first gay characters mm-hmm. on TV who are featured in soap operas. Drug so, use, domestic abuse. Alcoholism is rampant <laughs> in, uh, in soap operas. And then just random things like, oh, incest, <laughs> impotence, dolls coming to life. And the Vietnam War. You know, so it's like we have, there's this grab bag of the most sort of absurd to the most like legitimate social issues that aren't being talked about anywhere else. Yeah. And soap operas. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of why they do get that bad rap is everyone just remembers the over-the-top things, the murderers who are on the lamb for like 75 episodes, the people who are in that revolving door, yeah. the doll that comes to life, who <laughs> is one of my favorites. Um, but that that um, social groundbreaking uh, in terms of, of talking about these issues on television, I think does get forgotten. And, um, you know, because the people who are sitting at home watching them 
are housewives. And we've talked before about how housewives, especially once second wave feminism comes along, kind of lose out on the respect they deserve because people are thinking, no, she's just a lazy housewife. She's got her feet up watching her stories. Her children are running crazy and she's not getting her husband's dinner on the table. And so the fact that A, women are watching them, B, there's women as main characters on the show, and often women are behind the scenes producing these shows. I mean, these shows made some women writers a lot of money. They were some of the Ernie highest Phillips. paid, yeah, female writers in the business, Agnes Nixon, because, um, because of the popularity of these soap operas. So because it's such a female art form, I think that's another reason why it gets kind of laughed at and only remembered for, you know, the demonic possession of that lady on the bold and beautiful. Well, I think that we should point out too that one of the reasons why we have things like demonic possession going on in these soaps is because uh advertisers and the producers of the shows realized um you know uh, decades ago that their core audience those housewives were kind of aging out mm-hmm. of that um prime demographic. So they started to sensationalize a lot of the plot lines to draw in more um more viewers including today it's not uncommon for college students to get sucked into soaps. You have your housewives, yes, but you also have even teenagers watching them and dudes. Yeah, there was this Time article in 1976, which I guess is kind of the pinnacle of soap success, um, which pointed out some famous fans of soap operas included such luminaries as Supreme Court Justice Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Texas Governor John Connolly, Andy Warhol, uh, and a few others. So it's... It definitely, uh, when it, when it reached its peak, it was something that everyone was kind of participating in, but it was still like this guilty pleasure. You couldn't just admit, oh, I like this show because I like the characters. It was more like, you know, oh, I'm going to sneak home and catch, catch all my children. <laughs> and during this heyday, uh, as time reports, people were getting so wrapped up in soaps that some soap stars were actually physically in danger when they would go out in public because they were so vilified on uh, on TV. And then, for instance, CBS, this is according to Time magazine, was obliged to eliminate soap opera characters who were poor because the network kept receiving piles of care packages. Yeah. And one woman kept delaying her wedding and they got this angry letter from this woman who had bought like champagne to sit there and watch while she had the wedding. She says, I've bought champagne four times. This lady hasn't gotten married yet. So yeah, I mean, these are shows where it's easy to get emotionally invested in characters and people did. Um, but, but then it just sort of died out. I think that in an effort to bring in some younger viewers, a lot of the soaps were competing with each other. You were mm-hmm. loyal to one, so you couldn't branch out to another. And all the viewership kind of got divided. And more women started going to work. Yeah. They were not home during the day. So they lost a big audience there. But at its pinnacle, may I just, may I just toss out this nugget? No, I can't wait. Yeah. Okay. And I think this, this, this statement in Time Magazine represents the climax of soap opera's place in our, our pop culture and has since, since fallen. Okay. <clears throat> you ready for this? Yeah. Soap operas are the folktales that tug at the soul of a nation of strangers for whom television itself is a bond. Wow. The folktales that tug at the soul of a nation of strangers. That's profound. I mean, this is 76. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, you could maybe say in a, in a, a far crasser way that maybe reality TV are now our horrifying folktales <laughs> folk of, of a nation of 
strangers. pop culture obsessives. I don't know. Well, I think so. I think that this is, um, you know, soap operas start appearing at night, the nighttime soaps, your, mm-hmm. your Melrose Places, your Beverly Hills 90210. Yes. I mean, these shows have very clear lines from soap operas to, to that kind of format, something that was serialized. You yeah. had to see every episode. Dallas and Dynasty before that. All the way to Mad Men today. I think that that is a pretty clear line from a soap opera. In fact, the criticism that sometimes Mad Men gets is it's nothing more than a dressed up soap opera. Mm-hmm. So, um, we've got those shows. We've got reality now. We've got reality people who just, you know, live out their lives in the tabloids and they're just as outrageous as anything you would see on a soap opera. So I think that because we learn so much about how to act over the top mm-hmm. and crazy in a soap opera, I think we kind of uh, grew out of them naturally because we learned all we could learn from them. Well, and similar, and evolved it. And similar to how reality shows are uh, are so cheap to produce because reality, you don't have to pay Joe Schmo that much to get on film. Yeah. Soap opera stars aren't paid that much either. Mm-hmm. They only get about thirty-five grand, which is about the same as someone who's on Broadway, and they might have to memorize up to sixty pages of dialogue per day because they're only recorded a week. Recorded, guys. <laughs> I sound like I used to telegraph <laughs> um, a, a week in advance. So yeah, they are sort of um, unsung heroes in terms of the work that went into them. Yeah. Um, a lot of work, I mean, they were expensive compared to reality shows, but for what you got from it, you got all these actors, all these stories, all these dolls coming to life, <laughs> and, a um, chimpanzee nurse who falls in love with a male character. Oh, geez. Sorry. I wish I'd been around for that one. <laughs> um, but what's kind of amazing is besides all the hours of entertainment, we all got from these kind of shows, our mothers, our grandmothers, etc. There's evidence now that people around the world, women around the world in developing countries are getting something from these kind of stories. And for that, I want to go to an article with the the enticing headline, Soap Operas Boost Rights, Global Economist Says. Wow. And uh, basically they did this research and it was kind of research on what people in the developing world were watching. And they are watching soap operas and Seeing these programs with strong female characters, because most shows have a matriarch at the center mm-hmm. um, with all these offshoots around, and the female characters are quite, quite brazen, your Erica Keynes. Yes. Um, this is really setting an influence on these women who may be living under, um, you know, very outdated gender norms. And so what, according to this researcher, not only are the names of soap opera characters becoming very popular names in these countries, Quote, there's evidence to support the idea that strong female characters help women in these developing countries begin to challenge the power relations between men and women. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, yeah, big whoa. My my knee-jerk reaction to that is one grain of salt, two correlation causation. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that is an interesting corollary uh, to to draw, but at the same time, you can also read studies about the influence of TV in developing nations, and also you'll have on the flip side more uh, more body issues for mm, girls. Very true. Rates of eating disorders go up. Self image becomes uh, a, a lot more important in, in a sort of negative kind of way. Beauty standards change and start to westernize. So, grain of salt. But I did read one article about how. Um, They've started this this um, soap opera in Afghanistan mm-hmm. with uh, local actors and storylines. And I think that maybe using that model of exploring different social issues sure. within your own country, I think maybe in 20 years or so, maybe we'll see more about how soap operas made in these developing countries 
can eventually influence uh, the people who are watching them. Yeah, I could definitely see that rather than something that's being imported Exported, yeah. in, which is kind of interesting to think about when if, if you got actors who are only being paid $35,000 and shows that are being watched by literally hundreds of millions of people around the world and potentially changing lives. I know. That's why every actor gets into show business. Yeah. It's change lives. Change lives. And you know, I think that's the perfect note to end this mom stuff serial <laughs> podcast on. It's our cliffhanger. It's our cliffhanger. We always end with a cliffhanger where we ask for your thoughts. What is your favorite soap opera? We should throw that up on Facebook and we'll see how many general hospital fans we have, mm-hmm. how many all my children devotees we have. Passions. Anybody? We want to know what you guys watch. Did you watch it with your parents? That's how I got into soap operas for my brief, very brief stint in them. But do you buy our thesis that soaps are totally underrated? Or... Are you ready to wash this matter clean? Well, (laughs) Well, in the meantime, let's read a couple of the listener mails. I have one here from Jordan. And uh, the email begins, I wanted to comment on the recent use of people with vaginas and various forms thereof to mean women. And Chris, guilty. I think, yeah, I think you do this and it's, it's kind of a joke, but there's a good point here. There are people who identify as women who don't or might not yet have vaginas or who don't have the other standard issue lady parts. Trans women, women who have genitalia that have been damaged or whose genitalia didn't develop into an official vagina, etc. Our male-dominated society's definition of women as a sex organ for men's use and anything that is not a sex organ and not useful to men is thereby not woman. It's important to be inclusive. Um, not to mention important not to collude with the patriarchy. So therefore, the vagina people phrasing, though meant to be funny, can have the unintentional consequence of saying to some women that they are not women. And of course, Jordan and everyone else, that was not our intent. It is sort of just supposed to be funny. So if you, if you spiritually feel like you have a vagina, that's, yeah, that's who we count. I can't promise I'll stop saying <laughs> vagina a lot in the podcast, but that is an excellent point to keep in mind. Well, I've got an email here from Kristen on our beer podcast and she writes it reminded me of my younger more single days when I would look for guys to talk to at the bar I never talked to the guys holding the light beer bottles because one I wanted a guy who drank craft beer like I did and two I wanted a guy who drank to enjoy his beer rather than get drunk so he didn't have to have uh, all those low-quality, yucky beers because he was worried about increasing his waistline from all those calories and didn't need to skimp on costs, as the fewer high-quality beers usually suggested he probably wasn't a cheapskate. I was a beer snob then and continue to be one now, and my husband and I regularly visit craft beer festivals, events, and local breweries. So if you have an email to send our way, our address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. If you want to get in touch with us even faster, you can go to Facebook and hit us up on Twitter. We're at momstuffpodcast. And as always, we would love for you to read our blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?